0: Hello, and welcome to the So, You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life/scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life/scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life/scuba for beginners. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine biolife. That's patreon.com backslash marine biolife. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life resources to learn more see you over there. Hello mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. Where do sharks go on vacation? Finland. What happened when the shark became famous? She became a sea star. My guest today is Andrea Ricci. She is the executive director of the Hong Kong Shark Foundation. After decades as a corporate lawyer, Andrea realized that she wanted to give back more in life and found her passion in saving sharks in the very epicenter of the shark fin trade. Through her work, Andrea has educated thousands of students, created lasting change in her community, and through her TED Talk, reached thousands more. One of the biggest takeaways from Andrea's story is that you don't have to have a degree or be qualified to save our oceans. You just have to care and take action. Please enjoy. Andrea, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat
1: with you today. Thank you, Cara. I'm very excited to be here also.
0: Yeah. So you have such a fascinating story. You are the executive director of Hong Kong Shark Foundation, and you do some amazing work. And what I really would like to know is how you even got started by sharks. And let's go from there.
1: Well, the story is really quite simple and can apply to any of your listeners. I was working in the corporate world. I I am an ex-lawyer. And I was working in corporate communications and recruitment of lawyers. And, you know, kind of uh, in 2015, kind of had an epiphany. My father passed away in Florida. And I, I kind of started to think about what is life all about? So I literally started to give back by volunteering for various charities. And one of the charities was Hong Kong Shark Foundation. And I just, I decided in 2015 to quit my job in the corporate world and to go do full-time volunteering for Hong Kong Shark Foundation. I just realized that the sharks needed us, you know, and they're at great risk and they really need our help. So that's how I got into it. I'm not a marine biologist. I'm not even a scuba diver. And it's living proof that non scuba divers and non marine biologists can actually help the sharks also.
0: Yeah. So what was it that like really prompted you to take the dive specifically into sharks, right? Like I know you did some soul searching and you wanted to find something that was more fulfilling, but there are so many things, right? So what, what is it that called you to the chondrichthians?
1: I live in Hong Kong now for 32 years. And I live in a part of Hong Kong that is literally the global hub for shark fins. 50% of the global shark fin trade we estimate comes right here through Hong Kong. It's probably more than that, really. But when I walk out of my front door and down the hill... I get into, uh, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of shark fins where I live and I take educational tours and I take people out and people, the most common thing people say is I lived here for two years and I never realized that this was the global hub. And so, you know, it's just so around me. And I think I was guilty. I, I was part of the problem. And I, because I, in the corporate world had been eating shark fin soup at, corporate banquets, et cetera. And I realized I needed to be part of the solution.
0: So, I mean, what really opened your eyes though? You just mentioned like you, people lived there for years and like you ate shark fin soup and you had no idea and you felt like you're part of the problem. What was it that actually like opened your eyes and like, this is a problem and I don't want to be a part of it anymore. I want to be on the other side of it.
1: The realization that over a hundred million sharks are killed every year just for their fins. And now Uh, according to marine biologists, now it's more like 350 million sharks are killed because what's happened is it's not just for the shark fins anymore. So in Hong Kong, we primarily eat shark fin soup, but we also eat sharks as squalene, like in supplements and, and in many products that we don't even know we're eating it. And so it basically for me was such a shocker That here I was contributing. Well, I was negligently contributing to the disaster. You know, this is a global shark crisis. I realized, and so I just got this this feeling that this just has to stop because apex predators are so important. You know, they maintain that delicate marine ecosystem, and we have we we are such a big part of the problem here that we can change our habits here. You know, because when the buying stops then the killing stops. So that's just how I decided, you know, it it was something that was worth my time. And I just felt extremely passionate about it. I think it's an age thing also, you know, as a mother, as we get older, I think it, I'd always been concerned about the environment, but I got around, I got involved and I was around not just conservationist, but I was around animal rights activists, and really opened my eyes. I've I've pretty much been like uh, all my life a a vegetarian, pescatarian kind of thing. But then, you know, I watched different videos, cowspiracy, and what the health, and seaspiracy later, which is very important, I think, but also. You know, I I just became educated. And that's why I realized education is so important to opening up our eyes.
0: Yeah. When we chatted a few weeks ago, when we were kind of talking about what we would talk about in the show and stuff, you had a really great quote that educators are like farmers and they're spreading the seeds. And I really just love that so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Well, Kara, you and I are both farmers we are spreading the seeds of change. We're planting those seeds of change and we're, we're, we're doing something for the planet. We're giving back by planting those seeds. And I honestly believe that. I agree. So
0: what was it like you said you started volunteering from the corporate world, right? So was this like you just, did you totally quit your job? and you're like, I'm going to volunteer here full time. Or was it kind of like you t- dipped your toe into it a little bit, volunteered, volunteered, and then slowly it just kind of like became your life. What, how did that go?
1: Well, I volunteered for several charities in Hong Kong. And as I mentioned, one of them was Hong Kong Shark Foundation. And, uh, that really, as I got into it, the more I got into it, the more I realized that, you know, one third of the sharks are near extinction and how they're at great risk. And we just weren't doing enough. And there are other NGOs that have in the past focused on sharks. WWF has a big team here and, There were some other organizations, but nobody focused solely on sharks. And shark fin soup is such a big part of our life. You know, it goes all the way back to the Song Dynasty, like in 960 AD, when there was a poet and that poet named Mr. Miao Chen, he wrote a poem about shark fin soup. And then the emperor saw that poem and said, oh, we can, we should serve this to dignitaries, VIPs that come to the palace. And that's kind of how it started, because then it became a status symbol. People would eat what the emperor was eating. And so it's so ingrained, right? And and shark fin soup, along with things like abalone. So there's a saying, the big four, which are abalone, sea cucumber, which is not a cucumber at all. It's a sea slug, right? Shark fin and fish maw or fish bladder or stomach. And those four things are like the most expensive things you can buy at a banquet. And so people buy it to impress their clients or the clients to impress the company or at a wedding to impress their family and friends. So we're trying to educate. We're trying to plant those seeds of change by educating people that it's not necessary, that this type of practice is unsustainable.
0: Yeah. So, what did you call it? A fish maw? I've never heard of this. We're going to like hard deviate from the rails. Is this any fish? you just eat the stomach of any fish or just like specific species?
1: Uh, certain species are more expensive. And so, uh, and so that's more coveted. So it's fish bladder or fish stomach. It can be either. I, I, I've heard different. But oh, it's huge. It's so expensive. You know, the most expensive shark fin I've seen is 16,000 Hong Kong, which is around 2,000, 2,200 US dollars per kilo.
0: Per kilo. Mm-hmm. How on average, how much does a shark fin weigh? I have no idea.
1: How It's like asking how long is a piece of string, right? Because you have some shark fins that are only this big and you have some shark fins that are this big, right? And you have shark fins like like a whale shark, which are as tall as a human.
0: Right. They're like three feet long.
1: Yeah. So it depends.
0: Okay. So, so they could weigh anywhere from like a pound, which that's like a half a kilo. Right. And then two to what? But I don't know. How much does a whale shark fin weigh? You think?
1: Oh, I, I don't know.
0: Like a full size whale shark fin. I feel like, I don't know. Okay. Either way, thousands and thousands of dollars for one shark fin. Holy bananas.
1: Yeah, For a kilo, for a kilo of shark fin. That's not one shark fin. That's, you know, a kilo could be maybe, could be maybe just this part, right?
0: Right. That's what I'm saying is like, if you have a whale shark fin, right, that's like, what, three or four feet long. It's got to weigh several pounds, which. It's a lot. It's a lot of bananas. Several thousand dollars per shark fin.
1: No, not per shark fin, per kilo. So they only sell it by the kilo? Correct. They'll take the fin they take the fin and weigh it and then it's by kilo.
0: But like, will they cut the fin?
1: Yeah, of course. But since it's, when it's dried, because there's a whole process, Cara, you know, they, they catch it like Costa Rica or Spain or the United States or Australia, and they're shipping it to Asia and how they're shipping it is either fresh with the skin on, or they've, they've taken the skin off and bleached it like this and then dried it. So you can't just, you can't cut this easily. This is rock hard. This is cartilage. So for your listeners who don't know, shark fin is just like your nose. So if you were to wiggle your nose or wiggle your ears, that's what this is. It's just like, cart- it is soft bone or cartilage. And so when you go to the shop and you want to buy this, they're not going to cut it because it takes a saw. I see them, they have a saw where they're they're sawing it off to make it all clean. So you just pick the size that you want and then they, they you pay by kilo.
0: That is wild. Yeah. So for listeners, like we just mentioned, it's like the cartilage on the end of your nose or in your earlobes. And it's like a similar concept to the rhino, right? Like the rhino horn is the same keratin, right? It's your nails, same
1: concept. And pan- pangolin, that's what their shells are. You know how the pangolins have multiple shells on their back? Those scales are what they eat. That's keratin also. It's like fingernails. So it's like just having multiple fingernails, you know?
0: So what has been your strategy, right? You you're educating and I know you and you start with the kids and I really love that because they're the future and they're like the most receptive and open to this. So what has been your strategy for educating people about sharks?
1: Our strategy at Hong Kong Shark Foundation has been about getting ourselves in front of students and giving presentations about the shark crisis and educating them that this is a global shark crisis, but that the ability to make change is within their hands and, and they can give back and they can make change. And it's something we can all do by as simply saying no to shark fin soup or being a label reader and reading the label, you know, and saying, Oh, look, this has squalene in it. Right? Squalling is shark liver oil. And so it's been very successful. We have a shark ambassador program. It was based on the international baccalaureate program of CAS, Creativity Action Service. That if students are going to an IB school, then they'll know very well that they need to give back as part of their education. That means they have to get involved and give, do some service, and they can work with us and do that service they could start the CAS club, the Shark Ambassador CAS club at their school. And so first step is I get into the school and give a talk. And I think it's important to note that I'm doing local schools and international schools. And international schools have a great advantage here because they're pretty switched on about things like the Sustainable Development Goals that the United Nations puts together. There's 17 of them and we are number 14. We like to focus on number 14, Life Below Water. And so we get into schools. We give the talk. It's about knowledge, about telling them about the problem. But when I give my talk, it's not just about the talking about the problem. I'm talking about the solutions also. So that's very much in IB, a critical thinking. You critically analyze. Well, is there a problem? Why do we need sharks? And then, well, what's the solution? How do we actually help with this one third near extinction? Right and Over 500 species of shark, but in Hong Kong, only 12 are protected by CITES, United Nations CITES. So we need to do better. So I go in the schools, I speak. Um, I started in 2015-16 school year, and I had only spoken to around 2,300 kids. By the end of 2019, it was over 11,000. So that was a 350% increase in just going to schools and getting ourselves in front of kids. And from there, we try to plant those seeds, and we work with the kids to start shark ambassador clubs in their school um, so they can you know, look at the environment from the ocean standpoint, so they can figure out how they can do something within their school to raise awareness about shark conservation. And that's basically our mission. Those five words, raise awareness about shark conservation and any way you can. So, you know, students, if you look at our Instagram account, 90% of our posts are all from students. They're all giving back. They've seen my talk, right? Um, and they have put together like digital posters or videos, reels, and they're giving back. And it's And then they're getting credit for that at their school and they're getting credit, you know, they're putting that on their college applications, and and I think it looks really good that they're involved and they care about the the environment. So we kind of have a system.
0: Yeah, so could you describe, like, a project or two that they're doing that, like, you know, what quantifies their ambassador, right? Like, what are they doing as an ambassador that gives them that title that really is kind of making a difference?
1: One of the things that... We like to do is we want to have the shark ambassadors be leaders who think on their own, right? And we want them to be critical thinkers and we ask them to come up with ideas to raise awareness about shark conservation. So we can give them ideas or we can say, you know, the world's your, literally the world's your ocean. Go get out there and figure out how do you think within your community You can raise awareness. So there can be different ways that they can do that. For example, one school did a giant Jenga recently made out of recycled boxes. I don't know if you know what the game Jenga is. You pull out the wooden blocks, right? It's a good grade. So we get the kids to create the Jenga using recycled boxes, and then they put the the marine animals on the outside of the box. Then like at lunchtime, maybe in the school playground, they're pulling out the boxes. That's really successful. It's a project that helps them to pass the message on and educate their peers. Recently, we had uh, some students they were selling merchandise at a school fair before christmas and they had a nerf gun you know uh, they were shooting different kinds of marine animals with the nerf gun bullets and they were making money off that we had students that got some secondhand t-shirts upscaled them and put little shark logos that they had designed all over them they sold like over 300 us dollars that one day in, in their little pop-up shop that they had in the school. And uh, so it's, it's, it doesn't matter really what they do. They can do posters, digital posters. They can make videos, you know, it is completely up to the shark ambassadors on how they want to raise awareness within their school or their peers.
0: That's really cool. So, you know, you mentioned that you're kind of, you're surrounded by, sharks and not the best way, right? You you see lots of shark fins. Have you had encounters with live sharks? You mean in Hong Kong? No, and in your life, like, do you have you actually encountered the the magnificent creatures that you're working so hard to protect?
1: Yes, when I lived in the Bahamas many years ago on a sailboat, that was my first encounter with a nurse shark. And it was was amazing. And I was, I was in awe and, you know, in fear because as we know, Peter Benchley's Jaws, uh, I'm a product of that generation. And, you know, as Peter Benchley admitted that his movie Jaws did more damage to sharks in, and he became a shark activist actually later on in his life. Yes. So Bahamas many years ago, and that was like, wow, these creatures are so majestic and so amazing. And, and, and then, of course, for me, coming to Hong Kong, we don't have sharks here. We did have sharks when I first came 30 years ago. And um, unfortunately, six people were killed by sharks. They were morning swimmers. It's very common. People would go out and swim in the ocean. And um, so what we did was we hired an Australian guy like Crocodile Dundee equivalent uh, for sharks from Australia. We flew him out here. His name was Vic Hyslop. He came and he found a shark. He hung it up and said, I, I, You know, i own the, the shark killer. I've got him. And that was it. And he, we flew him back. And of course, that wasn't it. But there was no evidence that uh, that shark had eaten any of those six people who had died. And so it just fueled us. But as a result, we put shark nets at every public beach. So to this day, we still have shark nets. But we have no sharks in Hong Kong. Why? Because we have overfished the sharks. And we have overfished the fish that would attract sharks. So there's no food for the fish here. So it's really sad. Most people think we have sharks. Most people are deathly afraid of sharks. But I think it's, it's a bit ironic. And we are a perfect example of what commercial overfishing can do to an ecosystem.
0: Yeah. There was a huge poster in the lab that I worked in in college and it had a picture of a toaster and on it was a statistic that more people die every year from toasters or killed by toasters than they are by sharks. And I just think of that and there's stuff like, you know, more people are killed by selfies every year than sharks. Like the reasons to be afraid of sharks are just very small I'm very limited, right? Like there's just it's it you know, you enter the ocean, you're in their world. But I have encountered many sharks and had zero problem knock on what had had zero problems with them. You know, they've gotten curious, but it's like a curious dog. What is this? What's this in my domain? So yeah, it's um it's important work that you're doing and it's vital because there's there integral right without sharks like you've witnessed the ecosystem's collapse
1: correct correct and those apex predators you know they maintain that delicate marine ecosystem and and so educating people is really important the fastest growing country before covid for scuba diving was and probably is still china really Oh, yes. They love to spend money as tourists going to different places around the world. Many divers and marine biologists will talk to you about the um, challenges of educating the divers because they don't have that kind of marine ecosystem training in their daily life. So, you know, don't stand on the coral and take a selfie you know, I mean, basic kind of stuff is just, it has to be repeated constantly. Don't be, you know, don't be afraid of sharks, but how to, you know, stand vertical in the water, you know, don't get, let your back get to, you know, there are certain things that divers have to learn, but taking a selfie with a shark is the Holy grail. <laughs> Definitely right? But you can't do it here. You have to go to Philippines. You have to go to Indonesia. You have to go to, you know, Australia. You have to go anywhere but Hong Kong.
0: Hmm. A vast amount of irony in that situation. (laughs) Yes. Circling back, I keep coming back to your story because I'm really fascinated by this. Not many lawyers, and not just lawyers, just you kind of get caught up in your career as a professional, right? And like you had this huge life circumstance that kind of made you look at your life and be like, what is fulfilling to me? But what really made you go from like this part time volunteer to, I mean, you're a full time, you're running this, right? So, like, that's it. That's a huge jump, Andrea. What was there a catalyst for that?
1: Honestly, the catalyst was my father passing away, you know, and my questioning, what is the meaning of life? My being in an industry where I was, you know, as a recruiter, I was getting lawyers, jobs, you know, where they were making millions and then they're making millions plus kind of thing. Right. And very unhappy. People were very unhappy about their career. And, And for me, it was really also, I think, my age as a female, you know, in her fifties, this was, and, and having had a child being a mother, put that all together. And you make a cake of a sort of an older Greta Thunberg, right? You know, like, wait a minute, have I been, you know, waking this wake up call was really just always put together. Wait a minute, we can't do this. And, I think also for me, being around so many animal rights activists, 2015, I'd never really been around people like that, but local people who were activists and were vegans because they were vegans for the animals, for the planet, and and for you, Cara, you know, for everybody, right? And so I was involved in, there were a lot of, it was a lot of myth busting, let me put it that way. You know, um, I was like, well, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat eggs and dairy. Then I saw Cowspiracy and there's a new movie out of New Zealand called Milk, And I started to see how cows were forcibly inseminated, right, over and over and over. And I saw how chickens were being kept in horrible, unsanitary, unhuman, you know, like inhumane, and they were calling that free range, right? Free range is like, you know, four inches, right? Like that's insane. Right. And I think the advent of the smartphone allowed people to go into these places and see how they were really treating the animals. And so that for me was a huge catalyst. I realized that I had to protect the animals and, and, I couldn't say save sharks, but it's okay to eat this grouper, right? And, and to the best of my knowledge, most marine biologists, and I'd love to hear this from your, your listeners, they're not vegans. Yet they're advocating for not killing fish, right? And protecting fish, marine animals. I think Dr. Sylvia Earle might be one of the only vegetarians or vegans out there that's a marine biologist or that admits it at least and so that for me was a big just that combination of everything and the realization that you know we have to do something these these beautiful animals are necessary in the ocean and we're not only eating them but we're killing them with plastic you know, the the single use plastic. I, I even take this bottle out, which is very iconic for us in Hong Kong, it comes from a company that everybody knows with this green top, right? And the idea of of this single use plastic being used and then it goes gets thrown into the landfill. And then from the landfill it ends up in the ocean. And then it becomes microplastic and then little fish eat it and when you have that biomagnification bioaccumulation down the down the food chain and when the top apex predator in the food chain it has to eat you know thousands of these little fish every day in order to maintain and they're getting so much microplastic per fish that's why today we one of the things we tell and educate people about is that shark fin soup and shark meat like swordfish and other apex predators has very high concentrations of lead, mercury and arsenic. And and you you shouldn't eat it. And in fact, you know, we have found that there's microplastics even in in all fish now of varying degree and it's in it's in people's blood, right? It's getting transferred. So really the only way that you can stop microplastics from going in your body through the food chain is to change your food chain consumption. That means changing to a plant-based diet. And that's kind of what Seaspiracy talks about too. You know, I was really shocked when I saw that movie because we've always known WWF and Sea Shepherd and, you know, we've always known that the whole commercial overfishing is really the, the nemesis for the ocean. It's causing the dried ocean.
0: Yeah. So you bring up a really good point with several things. So the state of the oceans wouldn't be what it is if it was just, you know, small fishing boats going out every day, right. And, and collecting what they can or collecting, you know, collecting a quota, not even what they can, but like harvesting responsibly that fed their families, maybe parts of their local area. But the problem is the, industrialization of it, right? So you have these, it's not small boats. They're not even like medium sized boats. I mean, these things are like floating fortresses on the water that send out nets that are the size of air, like airline or airplanes, like 747s can fly through these nets. They're so stinking big. So they're literally just collecting everything. So this is really just where the problem is, right? So if you're purchasing or you're consuming fish that's responsibly harvested by like single hook and line or even better like a spear harpoon you know like one single fish is being caught and going out that's infinitely more sustainable than these giant industrial things but it all comes back to source and it's the same thing you know with the with the meat industry and the chickens and stuff you know there are farmers out there that are doing the right thing that have like the true free range pasture raised chickens but they're probably not at the grocery store you probably have to like Go drive out into the country where you are and see if they're even there. And that's really that's really what it comes down to is source. What are you what are you buying, and do you know what you are buying, and do you know how it was raised or not? Yeah, that's just something I and I keep coming back to this. It's like it doesn't all you know it all kind of gets wound up and bound up, and we and there is such big big problems in this world, but it can all be like broken down into source. Where does it come from? How can I vote with my dollars, right? We vote every single day with the dollars that we spend every day. So if you buy, you know, conventional industrialized fish, shark, eggs, whatever, you're supporting it. You're just supporting the industry. There's no, there's no two ways about it. You know, people have to do what they have to do to live, but that's what, that's what you're doing. Um, You know, and I recognize that not everybody can do that. So can you supplement? Can you, you know, like you mentioned eat more plants? Can you grow your own food? You know, can you find that local farmer that's doing the right thing and support them instead of the big industrialized industries that are not doing great things?
1: (laughs) Well, that's a very big point you're making. And, And I really think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And I grappled with this for years. And, you know, I considered myself a well-read, intelligent person, right? And I just realized that you you know there's no way that you can know where all your stuff is coming from. You can't responsibly source. You know, you can't choose right. It's too difficult because you don't know and 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 you know if a can of tuna says it's dolphin free, we we we've known this for years that that's not possible, right? And that, that, that this whole system and and it, and it was C-spiracy, you know, a documentary coming out talking about this, what everybody in our industry knew this for years, right? But it, we're just too, our voices are too small.
0: Right. And, and so what you're talking about is the, the labeling, right? The certifications like MSC certified, whatever. So the c documentary for listeners who haven't seen it kind of, I mean, calls out, particularly the Marine Stewardship Council. I don't remember if there were other entities. I think there may have been one or two others. It's been a little while since I've seen it. WWF. Okay, so there was other. There was huge industries under fire or organizations under fire. And what the documentary really highlighted was that the label doesn't always mean what you want it to mean and what you think it means, which again, that's why you should know if you're buying, if you're eating seafood, you should really know the fishermen that caught it. Or like, one person of separation, you know, we have local seafood places here that buy from local fishermen, and they're only going out on hook and line here on small boats. So and, you know, the the US has a really heavily regulated fishing industry. So, you know, I feel confident that they're sustainably harvested that's not the case everywhere else and unfortunately we just live in a world that you do have to educate yourself it's probably the most important education you'll give yourself is what food are you putting into your body and what what are you voting for with your dollars and it will take time you know it's not easy it's not like i watch two hours and that's done you have to find out like what works for you and your area and what's really available in your budget i mean it's there's it's multifaceted that's for sure
1: absolutely Absolutely. So that's why I think, you know, you're talking about sourcing is, is really true. And for, I would say 90% of the global community, you know, you, you don't have any real accurate information about your sourcing. The truth in advertising is so important, but when somebody puts on their free range, you know, you've been told that is okay. But in fact, now we know that that's an oxymoronic term that doesn't really exist. And so, you know, what can we do as consumers to be sure that we're not damaging the planet further, that we're not creating more, you know, more climate change? And I guess I, I became convinced that, you know, beef, which is subsidized by the governments all over the world, whether it's Europe or United States or Australia, you know, it's a great example. If you compare like a plant-based burger to a a beef burger, the amount of water you've saved, the amount of CO2 you've saved, you know, that the animals you've saved is, is exponential. And so, especially water, you know, to water animals and, and feed animals, if you just skip the animals and go right to the humans, there are statistics out there that shows you could be much more effective in managing climate change and feeding the population of the world. But I, I couldn't worry about that. I just realized that for me personally, I, I wanted to get people to stop eating shark products. And a lot of people didn't even know they were eating shark products. Like Fish and chips is such a great example. Fish and chips in Australia is mostly flake. Flake is a fake name given to shark meat. In New Zealand, it's called lemon fish. In the UK, it's called rock salmon. And they did a survey of like fish and chip shops or chippy shops as they call them in London. And they did a survey of 10 fish and chip shops. And they found that those fish and chip shops were all serving shark meat. You know, the the University of Exeter in the UK found a fish and chip shop in the south of of the UK and they did a test and it was Hammerhead that we're serving. You know, does does the um, fish owner, purveyor, even know the fish and chip shop know that they're selling that? And there's a good chance probably they do because the fishmongers in the 90s, well, what's the most common fish used for fish and chips? It's usually been cod, right? But what happened in the 90s was that cod was so overfished that the supply went down, the price went way up. And so fishmongers, fish sellers started to source other fish that they could use for places like fish and chips shops. And shark became the global number one meat, just shark meat. And so most people don't even realize it. And I talk to Australians, they go, I go, do you eat flake? You go, oh yeah, you know, and they're like, you know, that shark. And they go, really? Or they say, oh, I heard that before. They just don't realize it. So, but I think it's important to point out, Kara, that, you know, the country that the third most consuming country in the world is tied between South Korea and Indonesia, And that's because South Korea has a huge women's makeup industry. So moisturizers, lipsticks are using shark liver oil or what we call squalene in their products. Right. But they're also consuming shark as a whole. Now, Indonesia has a huge they have lots of access to shark, but they're not exporting. They're actually consuming it in their country. And they're third, kind of tied for third, is what I understand. The second largest consuming country is Italy. They are number two in the world, number one in Europe. But Spain and and Greece and Turkey, all these countries on the coast that have access to shark are eating it as shark steaks. Ceviche or ceviche. Right, they're eating that. That's right. And then the number one consuming country in the world is Brazil, and people don't. And they're not even eating shark fin soup. So I want people to be cautious that you know the, the the one third of the sharks being near extinct and 350 million sharks being killed every year is not just for shark fins, right? It's, it's for the whole shark now. And this is why we've seen the numbers, you know, catastrophically go down. And Brazil has over 221 million people, you know, and there have a lot of poor uh, people that are eating cheaper fish. And that cheaper fish is sharks because the fins are not being eat, consumed there the fins are being cut off in Costa Rica in Uruguay and they're being sold overseas in Asia but then the body meat is being sold within South America so we have to really understand that this is a global shark crisis and you know these and be aware as consumers that these products we're eating whether using like lipstick or fish and chip shark fin soup you know we have to make cognitive behavior changes and that is making a difference
0: yeah so one of the initiatives that i find really interesting that hong kong shark foundation is doing is the shark free companies initiative would you talk a little bit about that what does that look like what does that entail what does that mean
1: So we have three campaigns currently. One is the education campaign, which is the shark ambassadors that we've talked about. The second one is having a shark free wedding. Not a lot of weddings been going on because we've been in lockdown for three years. But uh, our third campaign, which is also really successful, is our shark free company campaign. That is where we convince corporates to incorporate into their employee handbook a shark-free culture, so that means that when the staff are going out with that, uh, you know, client coming down from China or, or from somewhere, and they want to go out to a big meal, and they want to impress the client, or the client wants to impress, you know, a company. Then what they do is they they you know they'll have this big seafood meal because Hong Kong's really famous for that. In the past, if you you know, you let the client order if someone was, say, a vegan or didn't want to eat shark fin, right? They're not going to raise their hand and say to the client, I'm oh, sorry, I don't eat that, right? That would be very embarrassing. So if the company has incorporated a shark-free company policy, then the manager will say, oh, I'm, I'm very sorry, you know, Mr. Wong, but our company has a shark-free policy and that engages and starts a conversation maybe maybe mr wong's like well why is that there's plenty of sharks in the ocean or you know who cares about sharks and so what that does then is that allows for engagement with the client and you as an you are then like an ambassador spreading the word but now you've saved a shark from being sharks from being killed for that meal and so that's good for the employees it's good for the client and it's great for the sharks
0: yeah so have companies been responsive to this and their employees
1: extremely responsive very good our challenge is that we just don't have enough people out selling that concept to corporates if you're looking at from a corporate social responsibility standpoint or an esg You know, this is really, this, this really fits in along with the sustainable development goals, number 14, life below water. This really fits into corporates wanting to tick those boxes as uh, from a CSR or ESG standpoint. So yes, when I have time, I'm constantly talking to people and, um, they you know, they know that the shark lady is always asking them to not only not eat shark fin soup, but to take it to the next level and you know, get their company to be involved from that from that CSR level where it's sustainable, right? It's more sustainable.
0: Yeah, I really like that approach. It's just it's just company policy at that point. It's not personal preference. So do you offer like some kind of training or something? Because I can't imagine that, like, you know, you mentioned corporate, it sounds like these are Larger companies, right? So, this isn't just like you talk to the CEO, and the CEO is like one of three people that work there, and he can just kind of like give everybody low, the lowdown. Do you offer like trainings or just kind of give any educational materials when you're kind of getting these companies on board?
1: Interestingly, the technique we use to educate students is the same technique we use to educate adults our talks are not more than 20 or 25 minutes because of the short attention span. And we just want people to raise awareness about shark conservation any way they can. So um, just like it's when I go to schools, when I talk to people about being a shark free company, I also offer to come out and give a free talk to their employees. Uh, we had AIA on the Marine side, the hooked us up with their Shanghai office, their Taiwan office, and their Singapore office uh, last year. And I actually gave a talk by Zoom in the office, but it was also Zoomed out to their employees. And they became a shark-free company. And they also gave us a small donation for um, coming out. And then we take it to the next level. You know, we might engage with them to do, say, a beach cleanup where their employees can become engaged by going with us out to it so that we can show them how the, I think I sent you a picture of a beach in Hong Kong where there's just horrific amounts of plastic and show them that, you know, they have to stop things like using single use bottles and, you know, they should, should all have their sippy cups, Right and they're, they're reusable water bottles, and don't use plastic straws, and, and use reusable chopsticks and, and, and utensils. And so it doesn't just stop at my giving a talk. We, we like to work and engage with the employees in many different ways.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So how do you initiate that conversation? Because I feel like that's the hardest first step, right? You go from like, how do you pick the company that you're, you want to talk to, or do you kind of go to networking events and meet people that way? And like, how do you start that conversation with these organizations?
1: You start the conversation with anybody, you know, It could be the CEO, but it could be someone you met at a sustainability conference, right? That's a little bit more challenging because then that needs to go up the chain of command right? Versus what we had a, a very large construction company recently. The daughter of the CEO is one of the students that heard my talk and she did a paddling challenge. She paddled from point A to B and she, at the same time used an online fundraising platform to raise money within her school and within her classmates. And her dad came with her. And so she actually raised like 2000 us dollars on a Saturday afternoon paddling with her dad from A to B. And that was all online because, you know, we, we couldn't do any public events here for the last three years. And so it's, we've really been in, in a sort of a lockdown from the standpoint of you can't have events of, we can't have more like four people at a table type of thing. And so her dad, after the event, we took photos and I did a bunch of Facebook Live and Instagram Live. And her dad was so impressed that her dad made a like, big donation to the Shark Foundation. And then her dad, when I was talking to him, of course, I grabbed that opportunity to say, hey, is your company a shark-free company? And hey, did you know? And he was like, oh, yeah, we would never eat shark. Well, let's, you're already doing it. You know, let's get that message out, right? And that's like 4,000 employees. And so the next thing you know, I'm getting a call from, you know, another person in the company and they're like, yeah, I got a message. We, our CEO wants us to be a shark free company. And then the ball just rolls. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And if corporates then, if corporate, you know, C-suite people can talk to other people about how they became a a, a corporate socially responsible company by joining our Shark Free Company program, then to me, you know, it doesn't matter by hook or by crook. We just want people to become enlightened and understand that there are ways that they can give back and help.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's super impactful. I think that you know, building networks and communities and making connections is vital, right? It's kind of, it's just how you make change and difference. And, you know, a lot of people to like protests and petitions and they have their place for certain, certainly. But I think like building these connections and like bridging, bridging these gaps, right? You know, is like, is the way to make some lasting change.
1: Very cool. Yeah. And, and you know, we even had a... Uh, sort of something I learned from Wild Aid was sort of a th- three-step awareness raising uh, when you're trying to uh, make change, effectuate change. And that was, you know, get a pledge going, right? Get people to pledge they won't eat shark fin soup. And then if that doesn't work, you know, then, then you, you target a company and petition them, to, you know, uh, like an online petition. They're not so strong here uh, in Asia. People are reticent to sign petitions, even online, for fear of retribution. From what? We don't know. You know, we can only speculate. Uh, in the UK, for example, if you get 100,000 signatures on a petition, Parliament must debate that, that point. Here, I'd be lucky if I get a 1,000 signatures on something. But that's okay. Students are way into signing petitions or creating petitions. That's the second, and then the third thing was, you know, if we're trying to target a restaurant chain to get them to change their way and, and stop selling shark fin soup at their like you know fifty five seafood restaurants, we would actually go and protest at their restaurants. That was very very effective. That worked for us to change Maximes and they became a shark free company few years ago, uh, Cafe Pacific became a shark-free courier. They wouldn't carry or ship shark product anymore, which is great because they used to say in their corporate social responsibility program that they only ship sustainable shark. We were like, sustainable shark? What's that mean? You know, what's today is considered plenty of sharks, like blue sharks or whatever. If everybody goes and eats that, it's no longer sustainable, Right. And so I think that's an oxymoronic term. And in fact, when Cathay Pacific told us that they had two experts from an NGO telling them that there was such a thing as sustainable shark, when we found out who they were, it was actually WWF that was telling them it's okay to ship shark so long as it was sustainable. But how can Cathay Pacific then be the police officer to look at every single shark fin that comes through, right? It's not going to happen. And shippers write dried seafood on the label and it gets through, right? So that's a whole nother story. But unfortunately, uh, due to political reasons in 2019, protests were banned. And even though it's just for animal rights, people, they didn't want to take that chance anymore. And so all protests have completely stopped for the last three years. And And that was a very effective way for us to get companies to you know, is civil disobedience type of thing, right? You know, go out and, and stand in front of a Starbucks, for example, or, you know, a big Coca-Cola and make your voice. That's a way to have, you know, them become more responsible corporate entities. But here in Hong Kong, we no longer have that. So we have to focus on education is my feeling. And that's what we've been doing. It's a slow process, it does take a long time for that flower, that, that seed of, to be planted and that flower to grow. But, you know, I, I think we can't stop. And we need younger people than myself. Who, we need leadership succession. And and so, you know, but we can't do that without support from people in the community. And and so we spend a lot of time getting that kind of support. And, and online platforms, for example, for fundraising in the U.S. is like a, long time people have been doing this for in china it's been basically banned you can't fundraise there's only 11 platforms you can use and that's like tencent weibo wechat they're all government controlled right so hong kong is is unfortunately going in that area so i'm going to grab as much as i can while we can
0: yeah being in lockdown for as long as you have has just really impacted the Shark Foundation. That's, I mean, like a lot of the work that you've been able to or had done in the past, you can no longer do. That's just kind of like really mind-boggling to me that it's still happening. It's still going on.
1: Well, it's not just us, Kara. You know, we've lost. We've lost many NGOs here. We lost Sea Shepherd. We lost Oceans Asia. It's just not sustainable. It's, um, you know, it's only sustainable for me. Because my personal situation, you know, I, I'm not a. I'm not going to give up. And I, this is my home, and I've been here so long. You know, I've lived here longer than anywhere else. And and I do speak Chinese, right? So I feel very, I feel very much part of the culture. But I, I feel very, I'm very passionate about it, and I feel that the future is is in our next generation right? That's the hope. When I go and teach at a school or even at a company, I feel so hopeful. You know, it's it's very Sisyphathian. It's like I am that dung beetle pushing that ball of dung up the hill. And during COVID, there were a lot of Zoom calls. People were talking about the burnout that animal rights activists have and and conservationists and how dangerous it has been for in certain parts of the world to be an environmental conservationist, right? You, you literally risk your life. And so I think we're okay here, but it's it's an incredible challenge. And um, we're not a 501c3. You know, we're a local section 88 Hong Kong charity, and it's very different here people from a fundraising in the US fundraising is multifaceted, multidimensional, you know you, you, you can do it so many different ways. But here it's it's a lot more difficult. And uh, so I'm just focusing on educating kids and this last year 2022 was incredibly difficult again because schools shut down again twice. Right? And and so in February schools will go back to full-time attending school. Teachers will full-time teach in February. So it's still going to continue for a while.
0: Jeez. So do you try to get in like, right when the schools open back up? I mean, I feel like the teachers are trying to gain their footing still. It'd be challenging to even get speakers in.
1: And that's why 2022 was so tough, right? Because we were just getting our footing from 2021. We, we taught over 10,000 kids again. It was really great. 2019, great 2020 not so great 2021 fantastic over 11,000 kids 10 11,000 kids you know and uh, and then when i go to schools the kids are so engaged they also do you know bake sales and they're having you know they're doing events and it's just really great they're so supportive and, and then 2022 was, again, a huge challenge. And even where the government said it's okay to have outside speakers come to their school, the schools weren't taking any chance. And then to do a whole talk in front of, you know, 300 kids with a mask on is just sort of, you know, it was, it was, but that's what you had to do. You got to do what you got to do to get that message out there. So that's why I was, I've been a big fan of Zoom because it has actually saved us so, the two challenges we've had is getting out to schools and fundraising, right? And we couldn't do any of that. So, Zoom allowed us to get into schools. Thank God. That was fantastic. And online fundraising through organizations like Give.Asia or simplygiving.com, because we can't do GoFundMe really here. And there's a lot of banking issues. So, you know, those two kinds of flat platforms. We had to think out of the box, or as we say in Chinese, we had to think of different ways to be creative, see creative solutions that kept us alive. And, you know, even podcasts like this are so helpful. And I'm so grateful to you, Cara, for inviting us to come on and talk about our mission and talk about what's going on here, because all of your amazing marine biologists that you have, especially the ones that are talking about sharks, you know, and, and are really out there, they have to realize that, you know, it's, it's an A to Z kind of uh, a team effort. All those people out there, A, in, in Costa Rica and, and, and you know, in, in Florida, and they're out there snorkeling and, you know, they're out there making it alive. You know, it was just Rob Stewart's birthday this week. And, you know, the University of Miami de, did some amazing statistics in 2017 about a live shark is worth 200 times more than a dead shark. So the, the diving and tourism industry was worth about 220 million U.S. dollars a year versus the trophy hunting sport fisherman industry is worth about a million. Right. And so that, you know, that's what we're trying to show people. And so for us, you know, keeping that going right, is fantastic, and and, and it's a global shark crisis, and that's what I keep telling people. We should be hooking up with every single marine biologist around the world and working together, right? There should be like a coalition of, of, because we're on the ground in the grassroots, you know, we are literally where all those beautiful sharks that the marine biologists are showing you are so majestic and fantastic, are all being killed because- you know, the killing isn't stopping because the consuming is still going on. And that's why we say Mai Mai, Joe Mayo Sahai. You know, when the buying stops and the killing stops, then that's super important. And Wild Aid has done a fantastic job to get that message out there with using people like Yao Ming and other people, you know, to, to let people know it's just not sustainable and we have to make changes.
0: Yeah, those are really good points. So for listeners, you brought up Rob Stewart, who is an amazing shark activist. He wrote, directed everything Shark Water Extinction 1 and 2. And I highly recommend. They're really great documentaries. He really shed some light on it. So he And he died a few years ago. Yeah,
1: 2017. Oh, wow. It's been five, almost
0: five years. Uh, he went missing diving, which was like... I think here in Florida, and everybody was trying. I mean, it was like a huge search and rescue mission to try to find him. Um, so, that's if you haven't heard of Rob or his work, I highly recommend it. I'll put a link to his work and everything we chat about in the show notes. Andrea, I have a series of questions to ask at the end of each episode. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So, well, given today's conversation, I'm curious what your answer is to this one. What is your favorite sea creature and why?
1: Of course, sharks, and of course, it's got to be the great white. (laughs) Though, of course, hammerheads are so iconic and they're so amazing, right? But uh, great whites, because they really are the apex of the apex, right? And it's not because they have rows of teeth and you know, and they they look so menacing. It's just because they're such survivors, right? But they're also on, you know, they're on that those twelve near extinct. Shark species, the sighties, and and we have to do more. They are at such great risk, and that's my that's my bucket list goal is either to go to Australia or South Africa, and and cage dive and see a shark, a oh, great white. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's
0: awesome. What does the ocean mean to you?
1: Hmm. For me, life, beauty calmness hope it's hope and so when i see it polluted by plastic you know when i i see species disappearing like here in hong kong you know from overfishing um uh yeah i i i feel quite hopeless right when i see that but to me the ocean is so diverse it's so beautiful you know, it's something that humanity relies upon for livelihood, recreation, and and well being. We need the ocean, and we need a clean ocean. But what we're doing to the ocean is a travesty, and it's unsustainable. We can't continue on this. And you can't listen to old people like me. You you know, we need young people in there. Uh, who are are really understand it and really get that. And that's why schools that teach those sustainable development goals, I think are so important for our future. Commercial fishing, to me, it's the number one evil. Um, There's another movie that you might want to, people might want to watch, which is racing extinction. It was amazing. And in that movie, they talked about, for example, going to Indonesia and training, retooling fishermen who were going after rays, who were in even worse situation than sharks and retooling the local fishermen so that they could, instead of killing the rays, now they're going to take people out and they could snorkel and dive and scuba dive with the rays. And it was the process that racing extinction did and they met with the local you know head iman and the head chieftain of the of the community and it it, i think it's been successful but we need to do more of that at the grassroots level
0: yeah absolutely it's very similar to what maddie stewart did or does in indonesia as well we had her on that show early on too yeah, it's great. It's a great idea. The fishermen, you know, they're sustenance fishermen. They, they're trying to eat. They're trying to feed their families. So it's a great way to still provide for their villages and their the local community there and save the rays at the same time and the sharks. All right. If you were given a blink check and limited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for?
1: Education. I would definitely fund our shark ambassador program. Our, you know, our shark ambassador program is a student driven initiative that enables like motivated students here in Hong Kong or anywhere in the world to learn about sustainability and become a vital part of our shark conservation movement. So, um, you know, it puts students in charge, which I think is really important, and it builds their leadership capacity, their responsibility while creating real change. And so it empowers students to make change and and to do good and so definitely i would hire more teachers i would hire more people to instead of just me to go out there and speak and it would be in in multiple languages it would be not just english but it would be in cantonese it would be in mandarin and we would take that to a more even more global level
0: i love it actually that's a question what language do the schools speak by you? And, and what languages are you presenting all this information in?
1: So that's a great question. So when I started doing this in 2015, people said, you have to go to local schools. You have to go to local schools. And I said, okay. So I started to try to get into local schools. But the local schools don't have any conservation. They have no sustainable development goals. They don't teach about the ocean or the environment because it's not on the final exam for university. So in order to get into the local schools, I have to teach in English and I go through as an an English, I'm a net teacher, which is a native English teacher. I go in through the native English teachers who are teaching English. And so the kids get a two for one English lesson and they get a, an animal conservation So that was the only way because I was banging around, you know, my my head was banging on the walls trying to get in and and they weren't letting me get in and speak in, in Mandarin because I don't speak Cantonese. And so then I realized, well, it doesn't even matter because even if I spoke Cantonese, they wouldn't let me in because there's no capacity for having outside speakers. I got in through the English teachers and it's been really successful. For the international schools, it's all taught in English. So that's no problem. Yeah. Yeah. But we have to, I think it's important to realize that people say, well, you know, ethnically you, you've got Chinese and local schools. That's not actually true. Ethnically wealthy Chinese are all in the, in the international schools. So international schools are pretty much like 80, 90% Chinese, and they're the ones who are wealthy. So they have buying capacity to buy things like shark fin soup at 2000 US dollars a, a kilo. Right. So there was a bit of an education process I had to do of those people. They misunderstood and still to this way. Well, you have to do more local schools. Well, the local schools don't have shark ambassador clubs and they don't have that built-in mechanism. Like they do say in an IB school where they're, you know, they have to learn, they have to give back. So it's a challenge, but that's the least of our worries.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just curious. All right. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be just a really fun day you had out in the ocean, or this could be for you like in the classroom. Cause I feel like the classroom is kind of your field right now.
1: Yeah. Classroom is absolutely my field, Kara. That's so true. Well, for me, my, I think my best story and I is, is my name, the Hong Kong shark lady. And how did I get that? Right. Cause I know there's lots of shark ladies around the world, way more famous way more influencing than I am. But after I had given a talk at a local primary school here or elementary school, one of the students, she was probably about seven or eight, she saw me on the street one day and she came up to me and she said, I know you, you're the shark lady. And I said, Oh, hello. So I'm Kira. And I said, Hey Kira, how are you? And she said, I heard you talk last week at my school. I said, well, that's fantastic. And I said, did you like my talk? And she said, oh, yes. I liked it so much. I told my grandmother, who's Chinese, but happens to live in Australia. She said, I told my grandmother that we cannot eat shark fin soup anymore because she loves shark fin soup. I said, really? What did she say? And she said, she won't eat shark fin soup anymore. And I said, well, that's fantastic, Kira. Thanks for telling me. And that is a success story. And, you know, I think when I go out there, I plant those seeds and those kids then take it on themselves as the new shark, mini shark ambassadors to take this message to their family, to their friends. We don't have statistics on that because that's really hard to quantify the success of that. But when I hear kids come up to me and say, you know, you're the shark lady, you came and talk and my grandma doesn't eat it anymore. Absolutely, that reinforces that what we're doing is the right thing to do.
0: I love it. What a fun story. That had to feel so
1: good. <laughs> That's awesome. It did. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: All right. At the end of each episode, I like to leave my audience a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. And I feel like this episode is kind of like one giant conservation ask, but we're going to put a pit on it what you got?
1: <laughs> I bet your listeners are thinking, wow, you know, this is a travesty. There's over hundred million sharks killed look, just for their fins, 350 million killed worldwide every year. How can we help, you know, stop this extinction of this fantastic, you know, apex predator. And you can take action by simply taking a pledge and just say no to shark fin soup, Be a label reader, read labels, look for Squalene, right? You can sign our petition that's on our website. You can spread the message. If anybody's out there is creative and they love to make reels or videos, make them and send it to us. You know, I'll work with you or make posters for our Instagram account. We are on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Weibo in China and Instagram. You could join, if you're locally, you could join one of our local educational walking tours that we do schools will call me and I'll take kids on a field trip or um, your company might want it or I will just come join us as a random if you can get 10 friends then absolutely I'll put together an educational walking tour start a shark ambassador club at your school doesn't matter if you don't live in Hong Kong I can work with you virtually I can tell you all about it We've got lots of steps. I can train you on it. It's, it's a fantastic way to reach out and to raise awareness about shark conservation. You can do fundraising for us online. You know, choose any platform. That would be a great way to raise awareness and help us raise much needed funds for our small charity. And if you're a student and you're really interested, you could intern with us. So you could intern with us during the year, or if you wanted to do summer intern, you know, last year we had nine interns the summer before we had 11 interns and they weren't even just in Hong Kong. They were all over the world. And one of our interns, I have to, a success story. I have to quickly tell you as her name was Catherine. And she reached out to me two years ago when she was 16. She goes to private school in New York city. She lives in Connecticut. And she said, I saw your Instagram and I want to do something. So she created posters. We would have Tuesday slide-throughs she would make for us. And it was great. And then she said, I want to do some fundraising. She used two different platforms to do fundraising. She raised over $2,000. And she sent me an email a couple months ago telling me that she applied and got accepted and used Hong Kong Shark Foundation as one of her extracurricular activities and that was she at harvard the school was harvard that she got accepted to so i like to think that we work together as a team and she is a really dynamic amazing shark ambassador she's a you know we need more fantastic ambassadors for the environment for the ocean for the sharks and i have to say probably 90 or 95 percent of all my volunteers are women And we need to support young ladies and and just young people, but we need to support that. So that doesn't stop after you, you know, get to college, keep going on that. Mm
0: -hmm. I love it. It's a great ask. And I love that we have a experience an internship opportunity in there for listeners. So
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So it leads me nicely into if listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you And your work in Hong Kong Shark Foundation, where's the best place to do so?
1: Well, you could reach out to us on, go to our website, which is just at HK Shark Foundation. And we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, LinkedIn, you can email me, our contact details are on our website. But I think if we want to work together to stop the killing, uh, it has to be from a global sh- level. So I'm, I'm super happy. You know, we have a new law in the United States. So for your listeners there, the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act of 2022 has passed and President Biden has signed it in the law. So that is really great. No sales. You know, it, there were so many ways around the previous law. So there was anybody who wanted to, you know, do research on that from a USA standpoint or even go to a Chinese restaurant and see if you can order shark fin soup because it may not be on the menu but it's definitely available. You know, send me your 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 testimonial. I want to work with people out there in in Kara's land and learn more about what's happening on on your side of the ocean.
0: Perfect. Well, Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I did too. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about what's happening here in Hong Kong with the global shark crisis. And I look forward to connecting with people in the future.
0: Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist
1: podcast.